You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. In one of our earlier podcasts, I spoke with Abby and Claudia about cover letters and CVs in the job application process. But now let's just imagine that you've submitted both the CV and the cover letter, the employers have liked what they see, and then they ask you to interview for the position. Well, this is a whole different ballgame. Many of us can be very nervous. We get the sweats. We want to make a good impression at the beginning. And that's all before you open your mouth to speak. Well, to help you settle those nerves and figure out what you can say to get that edge over your competitors for a job interview, I'm joined today by Sharon Downey. Now, bear with me as Sharon has quite the portfolio. So Sharon is the Director of the Medical Workforce here at RCH, but has previously held positions such as Acting Director of the Health Workforce Policy with the Department of Health, that's the Victorian Department of Health, the Manager of Allied Health and Medical Workforces with the Victorian Department of Health, and the Acting Chief Allied Health Officer with Safer Care Victoria. And on top of all this, she has a Bachelor of Occupational Therapy, a Master's of Public Health, and is a current PhD candidate at Monash University with her research focused on scope of practice, decision-making specific to allied health professions. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Thanks so much, Steve, for having me. Just want to go back to the absolute start of this process, and that's when the employer calls and, uh, or emails you and arranges a time. So let's just start. Is it okay for an alternative time for you to ask for an alternative time if you can't actually make that time. So like, what if there's a clash with another interview time from a different employer? And I've since tried to move to online where the a candidate can actually select from a number of interview times, which actually changed my life because I didn't have to worry about trying to, you know, email back and forth with them and that. What, what do you think is probably acceptable in this case? I think certainly there is that opportunity to negotiate the time, but it's all about how you have the conversation. I think you need to appreciate that this is a huge logistical challenge for, mm-hmm. for most managers and, and services, particularly when you're doing bulk recruitment, so lots of people, yeah. or you're offering multiple interviews. But I think, you know, as the the interviewee coming in and the prospective applicant, it's an opportunity to show how professional you are and demonstrate the, you know, the the degree of your communication skills in having that conversation in a professional way. So you might want to try something like, I'm really sorry, but I've got a personal commitment at that time. Is there any possibility for an alternative time? I think in the context of maybe uh, juggling multiple interviews across multiple prospective employers, you don't want to disclose that. You want to always present that the interview that you're going for is the most important one, obviously. Yeah. And I think I think one, one thing that employers should realise is that often if someone's going for a job, they are going for multiple jobs, but you still want to feel like yeah. the person who's applying to you, this is the most important job they're applying Absolutely. for. Like, you know, you often will doctor your CV or your cover letter to to have that niche of the organisation you're going for. It's yeah. no different in verbal conversation, you know, when you're engaging with your prospective employer. But I think you also need to be realistic that there will be an extent to which employers can actually be flexible in offering slots. You know, they've got other commitments that they have to balance. So, you know, they may be able to offer you one alternative, but you'd probably be pushing your luck if you're trying to move it a second time. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I want to break this discussion up into two sections because as a result of COVID, a lot of interviews have gone to online, but now we're starting to get back into the in-person interviews, which I must admit I do enjoy a lot more than the online ones. 
Let's just start with the online interview though. So I've recently completed some online interviews. And one thing I noticed was a large variation in how the applicant was dressed. In fact, I saw some people in suits, really well professionally dressed. And then I saw others um, in hoodies. And I also heard from a colleague of mine from another institution that they'd actually interviewed someone online and they noticed in the background that there was someone else lying on a bed. So, (laughs) which is just astounding, but can you provide some advice for those who are going to online for an interview into how they should actually dress? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think you need to appreciate an online interview where you've got your camera on, it's visual. So you should be dressing in exactly the same way you would be dressing if you were physically in the building. Um, And you do need to be very mindful, obviously, of your background, not just you as well. But general rules for dressing for interviews, and I know we can go into this in a little bit more detail later on, but it's always about neat, professional attire. You want to be memorable for your responses more so than what you're wearing. Yeah. What about below the desk? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Am I I allowed to ask an interviewee to stand up? I have done that in the past. Uh, I think that's quite a nice icebreaker, actually. Like below my desk, if I'm working from home, you would find me in Ugg boots and yoga leggings most of the time. And I think that's fine. You know, you need to think about what's visible to the camera. So, you know. Yeah, I must admit when when I first, it was a bit of a novelty, I think, when we first started doing it online. And I did ask almost every applicant, I said, oh, can you just stand up and show us what's, uh, what's under the desk? And there was quite a big variation. Some of them were still fully dressed in the in the proper suits and that others were just like, hey, I've got board shorts on or, or yep. pyjamas or something like that. So, yeah. Yep. And how about other aspects of the online interview? So things like the background, camera, lighting, sound, internet connection, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously best laid plans, but you want to test your internet connection and sound beforehand, um, you know, really try and preempt any problems in advance and, and have a backup plan if possible. So I think the key is not to panic and sort of say, look, I'm going to have to log in on my phone or I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to turn my camera off and then turn it back on. You know, people understand that technology is not always dependable. So, you know, you have to work around that, but you want to try and um, have that in place, um, you know, and running if you possibly can. I think you need to consider where in the house you do your interview from. So, you know, small children and pets are very, very good at making guest appearances, but in the context of an interview, you know, the interviewers probably won't mind that much, but it's more that it may throw you off your game as well. You, you just want to be in the zone when you're doing the interview. Yeah. Um, likewise, things like doorbells, you know, depending on your house, if that's a problem, you might want to put a sign up so that, you know, you don't get your online deliveries and the doorbell going while you're in the middle of the interview. Yep. One of the big issues is, you know, what you can see in the background. So, you know, if you're concerned about anything in your home that you might not want someone else to see and you can't find another spot, blur your background. Um, but likewise, you know, just be mindful of things like I don't need to see your hand washing hanging up. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's move on to the uh, in-person interview. So first and foremost, I'll just have to say this, make sure you turn up on time and if possible, 15 minutes early. I know that many interviews don't start at their allocated time, but you don't want to get caught out uh, being late. And in fact, I've probably noticed with online interviews, it's much easier to stick to time than it is when it's an in-person one. I think in an in-person one, there are other aspects that kind of come into play. So kind of allow a lot of time to get to the interview if you are going to be doing an in-person interview Um, and public transport can at times be unreliable and Melbourne, of course, so can the traffic. Absolutely. Um, You know, and when you're offered that interview slot, that's really an opportunity for you to ask some questions about how easy it is to get to the venue. Um, And that's not just in terms of your travel time. It's about where it's physically located on campus. You Mm. know, if you're going to have to go down the rabbit warren of corridors and and find a, a very specific room, that's often a challenge and you need to allow enough time to be able to do that as well. 
I'd also recommend you always obtain a phone contact number in case you are delayed for any reason. And uh, the sooner you can communicate that, the better. It's uh, There's nothing worse than five minutes before the interview's due to start to receive the phone call to say I'm 45 minutes away. Yeah. Like, if you know that the traffic has just, you know, there's been a pile up on the freeway, let, let your interviewer panel know as soon as possible. Yeah. I also just, this is going to go a little bit off topic, but I just want to throw in there as well that if you have an interview booked, even if you do get a, a, an offer for another job somewhere else that is more of a preference or something like that, probably best not to can't ring up and cancel five minutes before the interview to say, hey, just so you know, I'm not actually interviewing anymore. Like it, it certainly burns bridges, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, if you genuinely have accepted a job elsewhere, you know, it's courtesy to give as much notice that you're not going to need the interview slot because what we will often do is move up a candidate who missed out on an interview that's up. exactly right. Um, and so it, as much time as possible that you have to be able to rebook those kind of things is useful. Sometimes I think being late though is very much beyond your control as well. So uh, calling ahead is is definitely a good thing. Absolutely. And then when it comes to the in-person interview, then there's a big difference, of course, in the attire that people are actually going to wear. So especially between males and females, can you tell me, Sharon, what you would recommend for each of them to wear or or to not wear during the interviews? Interviews. Um, I think, you know, choice of clothing is something that's really important and it, and it very much reflects our personalities. So in dressing for an interview, you don't want to hide your individuality, but it's always a balance. And you've got to think about the work environment you're, you know, potentially going into as well. You know, in the context of healthcare, it is quite a conservative profession. And that's partly because we serve the entire community and that reflects various values and cultural and religious norms. And so we have to understand that, you know, what we wear does say something about us and the care that we provide. Yep. And we also have a lot of OCH health and safety considerations about what you can and can't wear, both for our own protection and that of our patients as well. So I think, you know, a safe unisex option is, and, and, you know, general advice is clean, neat and professional, but a safe option is always a nice pair of pants, but not jeans, yep. a collared shirt, flat shoes, clean, neat. You need to remember it's not a wedding. It's not a cocktail party. Yeah. It's not a nightclub <laughs> or a gym. Yep. I've seen um, attire at interviews that would be appropriate for all of those other settings. Um, <laughs> but, you know, really keeping it in perspective that, again, you don't want your clothes to say more about you than you do. You want your words to, to be front and centre. Yep. I would say I, as a previous, you know, operational manager, I've received lots of questions over the years about things like visible tattoos. Okay. Um, and I would say if you're self-conscious about them and you wish to cover them up, absolutely. It's really an individual choice, but I also appreciate they can be a really important part of your identity as well. Absolutely. Um, so I think, again, it's a personal choice kind of thing, but you've got to be comfortable about how you're portraying yourself. Likewise, piercings and false nails are also questions that come up quite often. And I think, again, it's about your individuality, but in those uh, with piercings and nails, I think you need to appreciate that they're not always um, meeting of OCH health and safety requirements in jobs as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point that you make. But I think from an employer's perspective as well, I think that it's also important to realise that things like piercings and tattoos and that shouldn't really give you a preconceived idea about what that person's absolutely personality not. is yeah. actually like. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, in some um, areas of healthcare, they can actually be very humanising, you know, often in mental health settings and even on the general wards, treating patients that look like you, you know, and have the same kind of dress sense as you or aesthetics, you know, that's really important too for people to feel like they're welcomed and included. And, you know, again, it's a broad, uh, a broad spectrum that we cover in healthcare. And so our healthcare workers need to represent that as well. Do you take anything into the interview with you, like a copy of your CV or a portfolio or certificates or anything like that? 
Uh, so some interview panels will specifically ask you to bring materials, um, in which case it's a must. You, you really should turn up with those things. I think if you're not specifically requested to bring anything, the general rule is always photo ID. Yep. So some will want to verify your identity before they do the interview. Some will also preemptively do some of the almost onboarding paperwork in case you're this, you know, the preferred applicant. So um, photo ID is usually part of that process. For a new graduate job, you might like to bring an example of a project or something similar that you've worked on, um, you know, that gives, a, a, I suppose, an example of your skills and, and, and attributes, but you just need to be prepared. You might not have a lot of time to talk to it. And so you're going to have to be able to sum it up in kind of, you know, one sound bite. This is something I've worked on that displays X, Y, and Z. I thought you'd be interested. Here's a copy for your reference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point, actually. Now let's start talking about when the interview starts. So we briefly mentioned icebreakers just before, and there may be others that can help you settle into the interview. On the other hand, though, you're always likely to get this question and often the, the start of that question. Sharon, what do you think the question might be that you get at the start? The start question is usually always your icebreaker and it's some variation on why do you want the job? Why are you the best applicant yep. for the job? <laughs> That's um, what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and I would suggest this is, this is a, you know, no brainer. You need to pre-prepare for that question. You need to be able to roll a question just straight out, you know, the response to the question straight out. Um, and, you know, that really then hopefully helps settle your nerves so that you can then focus on the, the questions as they proceed after that. And now I've heard a lot of different techniques in terms of the way that you're supposed to answer a question. And uh, a lot in medicine in particular, they're pretty big fans of the STAR technique. Can you just tell us a little bit about that technique? Yeah. So STAR stands for situation, task, action, and results. And a lot of people use this to structure their answers to behavioral questions. So particularly questions that start with things like, tell us about a time where you showed leadership. I personally use a, an abbreviated version of STAR. So I always, if I'm doing a behavioural uh, response to a question, I'll explain the situation, the context or relevant background about the example that I'm providing. Yep. I'll explain why I did what I did. And then I usually would reflect on what the outcome was. And irrespective of whether it was a positive or a negative outcome, I would also um, make comment about something I might do differently or what I've learned from the experience. So I think, you know, in terms of using something like STAR, the key message really is that interviewers are really interested in your decision-making processes and reflections. So it's not necessarily about always having to provide an example where you've perfectly nailed it. It's about the learning um, and the development that you show through a behavioural example. Yeah. And I know that some employers, when they uh giving you an, an opportunity to go for an interview, often they say that they want the, inter the, they want the questions answered in star format. Yes, yes. Sometimes they do. Yes, yes, that's true. So you just need to be aware of what it is and you also probably need to do some run-throughs beforehand, um, understanding how you can transfer your examples into that kind of, you know, that, that format. Yeah. What, what about some other questions uh, that are a little bit more common that may get asked by the employer? Sure. So, you know, the questions will also always be aligned and tailored to the type of job that you're going for and also reflect the seniority of the position. So, you know, for example, how I answered a question as a new graduate would be very different how I would then answer the same question now in a more senior leadership position. Yeah. So some of the really common questions, as we've already talked about, are why do you want the job? Why are you the best applicant for the position? Um, another very common one, which is a variation on those themes, is what are your you know, strengths and weaknesses or areas for development? 
behavioural um, questions are very, very common now. So, you know, tell us about a time where you've demonstrated teamwork, where you've had to solve a problem in an innovative way, um, managed conflict with another person, approached a difficult conversation, um, implemented a change in process or a quality improvement, displayed the organisation's values or managed competing demands. And then, you know, there's always the clinical and the technical questions. And again, they'll be aligned to the discipline that you're coming from, what the prospective caseload would be for that role and what the core business is of the health service. So, so for example, here at the Children's Hospital, you may get asked the question, why do you want to work with children? Yes. What do you think about the answer, I love children? As being, as being the answer to that question? I think it's a fairly lacklustre <laughs> response, in all honesty. I suppose it's, a, it's similar to, you know, um, when you talk to people about, you know, values of organisations and everyone always chooses, chooses something like compassion. You know, it, it, there's some answers that are softer or the easy ones that everyone rolls out. You know, you really need to, again, think about how you're going to stand out from the pack. So, you know, it might be, I'm really passionate about children's healthcare because my brother or sister had a healthcare experience when they were younger and yep. I saw what it meant to my family to receive that kind of care. Yeah. Or I really enjoy working with young people because I feel like they're really engaged and I can really make a difference to their long-term health outcomes. So it's still saying I love children, but you're actually giving a bit more depth and reasoning to your interview. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I think a lot of new graduates, something that I've noticed, a lot of new graduates will say that they want to work here because they, they do love children, but when you really delve down into their history, the only interactions they've had with children might be brothers and sisters or, or like family members, essentially. What they may not realise by answering that question is that healthcare of children is very different to your interactions with children when it comes to family because Absolutely. you have all of a sudden meeting people that you've never established any rapport with and you've actually got to start from scratch as opposed yeah. to seeing someone you know on a regular basis. Absolutely. Now, in our last podcast on job applications, we talked about addressing key selection criteria within the application. How can someone then relate this key criteria to the interview? Yeah. So uh, the, the key selection criteria and the duties in the position descriptor, they give you a strong indication um, really about the knowledge, skills and attributes the organisation's looking for and what you need to be able to successfully perform the role. So I think you need to think about um, in preparing for your interview, how you might be able to demonstrate some of those knowledge and skills, values, et cetera, in your behavioural examples. Um, you know, for example, if teamwork is really prominent in the position descriptor, you need to have some really great examples that you can show about how you're a team player. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and the tricky parts to answering questions are that the person may be nervous, which can also lead to a lot of waffling sometimes and yeah. sometimes even in a lot of cases off topic. How can you kind of prevent this even for the most nervous of applicants? Yeah, I would just reinforce that everyone, like all interviewers understand that you're nervous. Um, you know, like I think we're all, we've all been on both sides of the chair. So, you know, I think the panels generally will try and do whatever they can to make you feel comfortable. But I think if you are worried about going off topic or waffling or just losing your track, um, it's very acceptable to bring a pen and paper into an interview and you can write sort of some notes um, just to kind of keep you on track. So some notes of what the question was actually kind of asking you, some key points that immediately spring to mind that you want to cover in your answer. I would just say that you don't, you, you can't, you have unlimited time. It's not writing an essay under yeah, yeah. exam conditions. It's really about kind of just jotting down some thoughts and using that as a reference tool to go back to. And I would also say things like multi-part questions, and I'm a bit of a fan of multi-part questions, but um, 
they can be quite unwieldy when they're kind of rolled out to you to kind of get your head around, but you can ask for them to be broken down one part at a time or for a part to be repeated as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And how can their answers stand out amongst other applicants? So I sometimes think of this like family feud where you have to come up with a different answer to the same question than the, than the previous applicant. That's really how you kind of get yourself to the edge. You've you got to answer something differently. And I kind of think, well, how good would it be to have like a buzzer like they do in family feud where you just like ring the buzzer and just say, no, nah, the previous applicant answered that question that way. Yeah. So you're going to have to answer it differently. Yeah. Than yeah. That. That, that response has been chosen. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's probably a combination of both your answers and demonstrating how your personality would fit with the team. So, um, you know, I interview for both of those things. I'm looking for someone who has the skills and knowledge to do the job, but I'm also looking for someone who's going to fit in with what I need in terms of my team dynamics. You know, if you get the right material, you can always teach them the technical and clinical skills they need. So my, my I suppose, key tips would be don't make up answers. Um, you know, use real examples, even if you think they don't quite meet the mark, you know, you'll always come unstuck if you're saying that you've done something or seen something that you haven't. Yeah. Um, you need to be very honest and, and open about that. And I think also be honest about the limitations of your experience, but reinforce at the same time how you could go about getting that knowledge or that skill or that information or what you would do if you found yourself in that situation. And it's really um, going back to that point that you made about don't make up the answers and stuff like that, because particularly in healthcare, everyone knows everyone in healthcare, right? So it's it, you have to be really good to discuss examples in in your answers, because it's inevitable they're going to relate to your previous work. And as you say, things will actually come out if they're not specific about it. Absolutely, absolutely. And you need to be really careful. It's literally one degree of separation in most health professions, really. as you know. And, you know, your interview panel, they will have scanned your CV. They will have seen where you've done your clinical placements or field work. They will have seen where you've previously been employed. And you do look at it and go, oh, so, the, oh, okay, I know such and such who works there. Oh, I know their, who their manager would have been, X, Y, and Z. So, you know, you can still use examples from any, you know, setting that you previously worked in. You just have to be really careful about how you present them particularly when it might present a previous workplace or colleague in not such a positive light. So it's always about how you de-identify that kind of example. And if you are particularly worried about sensitivities in an example, but it's a great example for you to use, you can actually flag that at the start and say, you know, I appreciate that, um, you know, for me to answer this question, you know, it's a little bit sensitive because I'm going to be talking about a previous experience. Mm, Again, don't highlight where it is or who it is, but I just, you know, want to put this on, you know, on the table that I'm doing this in the context of this being a confidential interview. Yeah, right. That's, that's a really good point there. The other interesting point I think is that we, we've we talked on a, a previous podcast earlier this year about um, the use of social media, appropriate use of social media in healthcare. And that kind of goes into job applications as well, because it's inevitable in some cases that employers will actually look you up on social media Absolutely. to see what, what you actually do, do in yeah, your spare time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't want someone to know about it, you need to look at your privacy filters. That yep. would be my advice. Um, or just know, not put it on in, in the first place. Yeah, I worked for an organisation where it was actually part of um, one of our check processes that, like, you know, type the name into Google and see what you get back. Wow. You know, and that was just kind of just let's see what's out there, if there are any red flags or kind of thing, you know, that we just kind of did that as a bit of a general check. Yeah. Yeah. I think if people put my name into Google, they actually end up getting, I think there's a famous singer 
<laughs> and there's also an author or something like that that's uh, that's got my name to it and that. So I'm way down the list and just Googling. So it's always good to research the organization that you're interviewing for. What's your take on reciting the values of the workplace during their answers? So sometimes a lot of, I do feel a lot of applicants, they do it, but they kind of miss the mark a little bit. They kind of just throw it in just for the sake of throwing it in. Yeah. If it's a laundry list, it comes across as a bit contrived. Researching the organisation's values is good, but I think it goes also beyond the values that you want to look at. So you want to have an understanding of the organisation's vision, uh, the clinical services that are provided. Um, If there's any major projects underway, like there might be major building works, which is going to have huge implications Mm. for how the health service will function in the future. You want to show that you've got an understanding of all of those things so that you can align yourself to kind of where the organisation's going. Um, So I think these things are all really good to weave into answers, but you want it to feel comfortable and you want to feel comfortable with the content. It it needs to make sense. What about then including personal information? So like the disclosure of uh, of appropriate personal history? Yeah. Again, I think this is a balance. You know, you want to give an indication of your personality and why you're interested in the job, but at the same time, you don't want to overshare as well. And I think you can do this in general terms. So again, you know, the um, example I provided earlier about why, you know, you want to work with children, um, you know, I don't need to understand that your brother had cerebral palsy as a child necessarily, Mm. and he had foot orthoses and he had this and he had that. You can say that, you know, my brother had CP, he had a lot of different health treatments and, you know, I was really impressed with the team, you know, and again, there's degrees of that. You might not even want to say that he had CP. You might just want to say my brother had a lot of interactions with health services when he was younger. So it's about how you paint a picture and, you know, how you still maintain your professionalism as well. Yeah. I think as an employer, I've actually heard quite some significant stories from people. Yeah which are in some cases quite heartbreaking, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think that's the thing, you know, um, you don't want to be remembered for the wrong reasons as well. And, you know, we're not a counselling service in some that's ways right. as your interview panel, and you're not going to appeal to our heartstrings. You know, like we do this on the basis of we have to have be very methodical and open and transparent in how we select candidates and appealing to, to that kind of uh, sensibility is not something that works in an interview. Yep. In the previous podcast, we also talked about the continuity of employment, um, and this may get brought up in an interview as well in terms of they may ask about mm-hmm. that about that continuity of employment. Yeah, often, you know, at the end of the interview, it might be kind of a more general question that they might throw at you specifically, but it's also something that gets looked at in CVs, particularly when you're sifting and sorting who to shortlist for an interview. And I think it's very okay to have a career break. It's actually quite common these days. When I first graduated, it was not the done thing and, Mm. you know, you just didn't do that. But I think it's best to label it in your CV um, and then, you know, be prepared to briefly explain it at interviews. So, for example, a lot of um, people taking maternity or paternity leave will actually label that as a block or overseas travel for study or gap year or what have you. And then it's all covered off in your CV. It's all nice and clean and it's easy. Yeah. And we also talked in that um, podcast about the employee assistance program, at least what we have here at the at the children's hospital. And I know that other organizations have it as well. And that they can also help with things like career advice and even job applications. Do you think they may be useful for interviews as well? Yeah. Uh, look, I'm obviously aware that EAP has a career advice service, and I believe that's in place across most public health services, particularly. Yep. I've not personally used it, and I don't actually have any feedback from any colleagues that have used it. I think if it's available to you, it's something certainly to look at, you know, consider it. 
Last one is about referees. So some people won't have included them in their CV, but most, if not all health services will require a reference check to be done yeah. in order to make the candidate successful. Yeah. And a lot of health services will require three, two definitely, yeah. if not three. So you need to have provided referees or, or at least have an idea of who your referees are. If you haven't put them on your CV, you really need to be able to line that up for interview. Um, often people will come with a printed page and hand that physically to you at the interview, and I think that's very appropriate. Um, even if you've listed your referees, you need to be able to talk to the relationship of the referees, so that might be questioned. And again, comes back to that one degree of um, separation. So, you know, I will potentially know that Joe Smith is not the operational manager at the service you're uh -huh. coming from, and you've listed someone sideways, I potentially would ask you why. Um, you know, I would want a line manager, particularly from your most recent employment, to attest to your skills and capabilities. So, yep. you know, there may be a very good reason that you haven't listed them. And if you can explain that to me, that's fine. But I think you also need to be prepared that, you know, you might receive some, you know, negotiation with your referees that you've listed to and some requests for alternatives to yep. be provided. And I think, again, as a new graduate, I have seen on lots of CVs referees to be provided on request. My advice as a new grad is you've got nothing to hide. You know, I would just put them straight out there. I think when you move up the tree a little bit and it becomes a little bit more political about potentially moving between services, et cetera, then it's fair and reasonable to keep it a little bit closer to your chest. Yeah. I also kind of want to point out to make sure that you tell your referee that you are Absolutely. going for a job and that they may get a call. And yes. that, and that, it is for every job. Don't just yep. say, can you just be a referee? Yeah. And then you go for a hundred jobs and don't tell them about any of them. Yep. And just because you asked them once two years ago doesn't mean that they may still be able to be your referees. So I'll be honest, if I'm not per, like asked specifically, I will actually disclose that when they ring me. I haven't actually been asked to be this person's referee. Yep. I'm not comfortable to give a reference. And yep. that doesn't then present you in the best light. No, good point. Very good point. And at the end, end of the interview, you often get asked if you have any questions about the role or the organisation. Should you ask any questions? And if so, what should you ask? You should definitely ask questions <laughs> is the correct answer. <laughs> um, you know, if you don't ask any questions to the panel, it really gives the impression that you don't care and that you haven't done any homework. Yeah. Um, and that's not what the lasting impression you want to leave the panel with either. But the questions you choose when strategic, they can really reinforce why you're the best person for the job. So there are certainly some things not to ask, though. So I would not ask about salary, annual leave entitlements, opportunities for promotion at interview. That's all the sort of stuff that you ring um, you, when you first you know ring up about the job. You would ask about, um, and if you don't like the answers, do not apply. Yeah. I cannot reinforce that enough. Um, <laughs> I had a situation recently where I had that conversation with the person before they applied. We interviewed them as you know as part of multiple interviews. They were our preferred applicant. We offered them the job, then turned around and tried to negotiate the salary, despite me having told them very clearly up front the salary was what the salary was. Wow. And you know it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of your time, yeah, and it doesn't present you in the best light. So. Um, I cannot reinforce that strongly. Yeah, enough. fair enough. One question or comment might be um, that you might want to consider is you'll see from my application, I'm enrolled in postgraduate study. Can I confirm this is something the organisation could support me with? You know, this is a nice kind of question that sort of enables you to give some more information about yourself, yeah. but at the same time is hooking into, do you think this is a value add for the organisation? Will I get some support for this? Kind of paints a picture about the kind of person you are. 
Other good examples are questions that really demonstrate a level of professional maturity and reflection. So you can actually turn the questions around onto the panel. So one of the best ones I ever had was, why do you like working here? And what are the best elements of working here? And, you know, for me, it really put me a little bit on the back foot. I was fully expecting kind of fairly straight up and down questions at the end. But, you know, it was an opportunity for me to reflect on how I sell the organisation to this individual. I must admit, I I actually do get asked those questions quite a lot when I'm interviewing as well. And it it does make you sit back and think, okay, well, what is it about this job that I do actually really enjoy and and the organisation? Absolutely. Again, when it comes to asking questions, though, that the questions do have to have some worth, as you as you say, but don't just ask any question just for the sake of asking a question, though. Absolutely, yep. Sharon, look, thanks so much for talking with us today. I'm sure it's going to help with those nervous applicants. Do you have any last-minute tips? Probably a few little bits and pieces that might be useful. So I think just really, again, to reinforce that the interviewers know and expect you to be nervous. Um, you know, we've all been there. We've all sat both sides of the chair. And we know that most people don't enjoy interviews. So just, you know, try and relax in as best you can, um, knowing that that's not easy. But, you know, the panel are not there to be adversarial. They're not there to be nasty or to try and trip you up. They're really just trying to find the best applicant for the job. I'd also say don't be phased by extra questions. So um, often if I'm really interested in what someone's saying or I think they're getting really close to giving me the information that I want, I'll ask a few other little kind of questions just to kind of, you know, drip filter the information out and prompt them. And some people freak out a little bit like that, like, oh, I'm getting the answer wrong if you're asking questions. Not at all. It's actually you've engaged the interviewer Mm. and that they're wanting some more information from you. Um, So use that to your advantage. You know, uh, really listen to what they're asking you and try and hone in on what they've requested. I would say at the end of the, you know, the interview process and the outcome, if you don't get the job or it's not the best interview in the world, just really be kind to yourself. You haven't failed. You've you've put yourself out there and you're going to use those learnings to be better the next yeah. time around. And I would say there are very, very, very few people in the world who have, you know, got every job they've ever, you know, interviewed for. I have certainly not got every job yeah. I've ever interviewed for. But again, it makes you reflect and you you learn for next time about what you would do differently and why you want what you want. So, you know, it helps focus you. And I think also my my favourite tip would be try and do something enjoyable after the interview. I know there's always the temptation to rush back to work or rush home or pick up the kids or what have you, but you can even take 15 or 20 minutes just to grab a coffee or go for a walk or, you know, sit in the park or what have you and just take a little bit of time for yourself afterwards. I think that's kind of a nice way to, to end it off and almost say thank you for yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's that's wonderful advice. But also, I think if you're unsuccessful, then you can also feel free to ask the employer for some feedback for the interview as well. Absolutely. Because they will, the feedback can often be very, very constructive anyway. Sharon, thanks again. It was great to chat with you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.